Hello, cruel world, and welcome to a very special episode of I Love This, You Should Too. My name is Indy Canna Pineapple Rendawa, and with me is Samantha California Dreamin' Heath. <laughs> I love it. How are you doing, Sam? I'm good. It's finally warm out when we're recording this, and uh, it feels a little bit like summer, so I'm feeling very, very California dreaming. Oh, that worked out nicely. Yeah. How are you, can of pineapple? Well, I, I'm feeling like an expired can of pineapple. Oh. You know how I've kind of given up sleeping this week. Yes, I, I do I know that. I just stopped sleeping. It's not going well. It makes me more tired when you don't sleep. Yeah. So... I should work on that. You should sleep more. <laughs> Last night I got to the point, I was like reading stuff, and I, was, I said to myself, at least not out loud, you know what, I should, I can't read this right now. I only have the capacity to care about one genocide currently. Oh my god. I just had to put this one aside. Which, I've gone to that point in my life. What genocides were you reading about? There's so many, but I, there is. I was like, no, you know what, no more reading about Palestine tonight because... I'm worried about all the people dying in India today. And I, for the sake of me getting at least a few hours of sleep, I can only worry about one at a time. Mm. So that's the state of the world. Yikes. But you know what? Let's, uh, let's bring things up a little bit. And let's talk about the fantastic 1994 Wong Kar Wai, although I just heard him introduce himself and it's Wong Kar Wai. I've been mistaken this whole time. Whoa. Yeah. Film, Chunking Express. Woo! So if you're joining us for the first time, how this works is... Samantha had never seen Chunking Express, and it was my pick last week, so I suggested we watch it. It was something that I had loved but hadn't seen in quite a while. And, well, I'll, I'll do my side first, if I may. Mm-hmm, Absolutely. So the first time I saw this, I was in university, and I instantly loved it. It really opened up a whole new world of like looking at filmmaking and appreciating the artistry of it, rather than just like people make a movie and then we watch it. Right. And this was the one of the first movies that really made me look at it in in a new way. It hit me at the perfect time too, because I was like. 18, 19, I was kind of a pretentious teenager just getting into the idea of filmmaking as an art form. And then the second time I saw it, I still appreciated it, but I felt like it almost dragged at some points. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I loved it, but I didn't think it was like one of the best movies ever made, like I thought the first time I saw it. And now watching it with you the other night, this may have only been the third time I've seen this, actually. Really? Maybe fourth. But I can say that this time, I liked it more than any of those huh. times. I kind of assumed that you'd seen it more than five times. Most of these movies that I say that are like my favorite movies, I've seen like two, three times. Hmm. Because a lot of movies that I think are my favorites, I can't watch that often. They're not always the most rewatchable. I think this one is, though. And I think the second time I watched it where I didn't like it as much, I may have been paying more attention to like the craftsmanship of it, like mm. looking at it like a filmmaker. Right. And I think that was doing it a disservice on my part. And like this time I loved it so much more for the like the emotional beats, all that intangible charm of this movie, more than like the style and the construction, which I still think is is brilliant. But I think that's taken a backseat now to the uh, the more fun stuff. 
So for my end, I can say, yes, I truly love this movie. And I'm sure I'll recap at the end in a big soliloquy why I love it. (laughs) Can't wait. And you know what? I just thought of what I said I'm going to say at the end. Yep. I'm banking (laughs) on it. It'll be big. But yes, I do, in fact, still love this movie. So now the question comes to you. Your first time. Did you love it? I watched it with you. Yep, I was there. (laughs) Um, And I didn't really understand what I had just watched. And then I read a synopsis. Oh. And then I loved it. Okay, wait. So, like, it's kind of weird. So when you watched it, there were, like, actual plot things that you felt like you just didn't get, maybe? So I didn't. Like, I knew that the cops were two different people. But they kind of blended for you? But they kind of blended for me. And then I was confused about the flight attendant and how she becomes a flight attendant at the end. And, like, the the May character. And it just, like, it all blended too much for me that I just, like, had to read a synopsis and be like, okay, so that is what I saw and this is actually what it is. And then I enjoyed it retroactively. And for any of you out there, I fully vouch for Samantha in saying she is not racist for com- <laughs> for combining God. all of these characters because I feel like that's a very intentional choice. Yeah, they look so similar. I definitely disagree with that, but that's because Tony Leung is one of my very favorite okay. actors of all time. So I, I can't like see if that. I hadn't, if I had seen him in other things, I might know him better. But just like how when I watch... Every romantic comedy with you. I confuse the male always. Mm-hmm. They yeah. all look the same to me. Okay, yeah. In all American romantic comedies. And I think so that's I understand what, what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. But once I read the synopsis and I realized that, yes, that is actually what I watched and I did have it right because I was still questioning myself after. And it's just an odd thing because this movie stops halfway through and completely restarts. Yes, exactly. Which is crazy. Yeah. And that really confused me. So I was like, is this the same guy at a different life stage? Like, like yeah. I was like, did I miss some big thing? And then I read the synopsis online um, and I like read a couple articles about it and I was like oh no okay so I did have it right it is just very strange in the way that he just like chops the movie in half yes and then goes on to a different completely different story with two completely different people yes and so I then thought about watching the movie like I thought about how we had watched the movie and what I was thinking during the movie and I was like no I actually did really like this movie because it was kind of exactly what I like in a movie like a romantic comedy and it was just like very out of my comfort zone for a romantic comedy like everything you (laughs) just said is exactly what I not feared but kind of expected Mm -hmm. and would love to talk through I think this movie is a great movie to watch for for what we're doing because Mm -hmm. it's a movie that introduces lots of these like kind of art house ideas movies that aren't necessarily typical in lots of different ways and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just because it's a foreign film but this also makes choices to be a little bit difficult and it's very stylized right but this is a very accessible point to get into those i think because it's it's a fun light stylish romantic comedy in a lot of ways yeah and i might have been when we were watching it first and i wasn't really understanding what i was watching i think i might have been putting a little bit more of like a heavy lens on it 
Yes, I did notice that during the movie, I laughed a lot. You didn't as much. No, and I think I was just trying to, like, I was trying to watch it like like one of your more serious movies. Right. Um, And I think that that might have been wrong. But as soon as I read, like I said, like, I, as soon as I read a little bit about the movie, I was more able to be like, no, that was, like, a cute, funny movie. And I did get it right. I was just trying to be too complex about it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I love this movie and why I was so excited to bring it into Mm -hmm. the show is because I always say, like, just because something's a romantic comedy doesn't mean it needs to be, like, surface level only. Right. Because this is is a romantic comedy, probably more than anything else. And it does have lots of other kind of genre stuff in it, but it's mostly a romantic comedy. But it also, I think, talks about the fluidity of identity. Mm -hmm. I think it talks about transience versus stillness and lots of more lofty things but it's also just like a fun time romantic comedy Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so that is why i'm saying that i love this movie whoa (laughs) well i'm thrilled about that so this was kind of like a long 10 minute introduction but let's say how we're gonna go over things okay i'll give you a little bit of introduction into how this movie came about and it's kind of like place in time of when Mm -hmm. they were making it Then I'll walk us through the story very quickly, and we can talk about whether or not certain bits were as funny as I think they were. (laughs) And then we can wrap up with some of those more uh, heavy ideas that I think are present in this, but are not necessarily on the surface as much. Love a heavy idea. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, Let's do it. So this came out in 1994, and it was made in the middle of him making another movie. So he got a big budget movie called Ashes of Time, which is a like a big epic movie, which mm-hmm. is different from what he is making in a lot of these other ones. And it was so meticulously planned out, so heavily storyboarded because it's a big budget movie that he became so entrenched in this editing process of this movie that he felt he was losing any like artistic vision. Mm-hmm. It was just it was too much for him. So during the editing of this giant movie that he shot, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to write and film and edit and release an entire movie in two months. And that's what they did. So it didn't get released in two months, but it was shot and edited in two months, which is very fast for a feature film if you're not familiar with it. I understand that feeling, though, when you get so bogged down in the same thing that you just have to, like, do something else. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So this one, Chungking Express, was much more free and experimental, and he released it under his own uh, kind of studio, so he didn't have to answer to anyone else. And it's really a movie that could not have been planned, and I think it's a product of how liberal they were while making it. Like, for instance, when Faye floods that apartment, Mm -hmm. that's the cinematographer's apartment, and they just flooded it. (laughs) And he still complains to this day that his phone didn't work for a year and his floors were all ruined and they destroyed his CDs and his fax machine. Oh my god. That's, I think his name's Chris Doyle? But anyway, he does a lot of Wong Kar Wai movies and he's very, very good. They made those characters cops because cop movies were the thing in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. There are so many Jackie Chan ones. Uh, John Woo, who I've talked about in the past, made a lot of really good cop movies. And Tony Leung was in a bunch of those. (laughs) So that's the main reason they were cops is just as they could get money. They're like, yeah, it's a cop movie. Trust us. It's not some weird, artsy 
love story. It was definitely a weird artsy love story. So I'm glad they got it past the like the people who were funding it. <laughs> and then some of those characters who are all four of them are very, very big names. And I'll try to come up with like who would be the equivalent for us, but okay. you know, it doesn't always work like Not that. Not always. So Tony Leung is maybe my favorite living actor. I think he's fantastic. Let's say he's like a uh, a Tom Cruise of Hong Kong. Okay. He is the one guy. of the biggest stars. Right. But from action, also romantic stuff. Right. So he's just, he's a big, big name. But I think Tony Leung's a better actor, but that's just me. So he's also worked with Wong Kar Wai a lot. Then we get uh, Takeshi Kinoshiro, who is an up-and-coming guy. He turns out to be a really big name, and it still is to this day. He's really interesting because he's Taiwanese and Japanese, um, Hmm. ethnically speaking. So he speaks those languages, but his Cantonese in this movie, which we can't tell because we don't speak Cantonese, is really heavily accented. Oh. But Hong Kong is mostly Cantonese, but he speaks Mandarin when he's talking to uh, Bridget Lin. Bridget Lin is... I don't know, the Greta Garbo of Hong Kong, maybe the uh, Meryl Streep. Like, she was very well-respected and had a really long career. And this is her final film appearance. After this, she's just like, all right, I'm done. I've done everything I wanted to. And she just kind of walks away. Oh, I like that, though. In this movie, she was also shooting a big, giant period piece. So she would have hair and makeup from that. And because this movie was just being shot, like, quick run and gun at night... They put her in a trench coat and a wig, and they're like, all right, we don't have to deal with any of the makeup stuff. Uh, and sunglasses. Yes. The whole time. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense, because I was wondering why she wore her sunglasses the whole time, and her wig, and her trench coat the whole time. Well, then there's another reason. So at first, how this movie was being made is Wong would write during the day, and then they'd shoot it at night. Oh my God. He was writing the script, and as they went, which is crazy, but they shot essentially... A whole other movie where Bridget Lin's character, the blonde woman, and Kinoshiro, the first cop, there's a hostage situation. And the hostage takers want to meet this movie star who had since retired and gone into hiding, pretty much. And that's the only reason they're going to let the hostages out. So he goes to find that woman, and she's a movie star. And that's why she's dressed like that, because she's in hiding. Oh, because she's like, don't take pictures of me. Yeah. She's like paparazzi hiding. Yes. Yeah. So there's a, a bunch of scenes, and you can still see them, where it's this movie. So it's the same characters wearing the same things in the same places. But Doing different things. it's this completely other idea. Huh. And then somewhere along the line, they're like, no, this isn't working. Let's change what this is. And they made her the drug like boss kind of lady. Interesting. Yeah. I did like her story arc in this movie mm-hmm. of like being this like badass like drug lady and then quickly realizing that she's like in over her heads when everyone just disappears with the drugs. Yeah, and then she just goes and murders a bunch of people. Yeah, and so it's just like spirals out of control so quickly and it seems very real to life. Like it feels like yeah, you think you can do this thing, but then all of a sudden you are in way over your head and then you're forced to do some like really scary things. Yeah, it's not a big elaborate setup of how this all pays off and then it's all so clever and you're like, wow, yeah, look, it all exactly. worked out. It's like, no, everything went terribly and then she had no other choice and she just goes and shoots a bunch of people. Exactly. And so, yeah. It's just chaotic. I did enjoy her story arc because it seemed very realistic 
mm-hmm. and like down to earth almost because you're like, yeah, you think you can do this like crazy drug kingpin thing. And then you realize, oh, no, no, no. There's a reason that those people are like armed to the teeth and have like bodyguards and stuff. And it's because this is very, very dangerous and very, very unpredictable. <laughs> and the last of our main forecast is Fei Wong. And she is, I don't know, maybe she's like the Taylor Swift of Hong Kong. <laughs> so she was a musician first. Okay. And then she did this. And I think it was after this that her career really blew up. But she was like a, a very big name for being a, a pop star in Hong Kong. She does some other film work too, I think, but not very much. She's a singer primarily. And it was kind of a handing of the torch in one way because it was... Bridget Lin's last movie and Fei Wong's first movie, and they both have giant careers. Cool. Also, thank you for using Taylor Swift on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that you'd uh, respond to that. I would. So then you're like, oh, she's big time. Oh, she's like Taylor Swift. I get it. <laughs> and I think one of the worries I had about this movie is it's kind of known as like a filmmaker's movie. Mm-hmm. Like Tarantino loves this movie. And the reason we were able to see it in over here in the 90s was because of him. He started a production company that was just for distribution through Miramax and said, give me money. I'm going to bring a bunch of movies over here and we'll distribute them and it's going to make you money. Hmm. And this was kind of the big movie in of those ones. Oh, cool. Switchblade Sisters was in there too, which do is you, good stuff. I can never remember. Do you like Tarantino or do you dislike Tarantino? I dislike him as a person. Okay. I like him as a film critic. Mm-hmm. I used to like him as a filmmaker and lately not so much. Right. But early Tarantino films I do think are quite good. I feel like I like early Tarantino films and not as much the recent ones. Me too. Yeah. It's odd because he gets more critical acclaim a lot of the time now and they're not as good. I feel like, what is it, No Country for Old Men? That's not him, but maybe. What am I thinking of? I don't know. Tell me a word about this movie. Um, There was lots of shooting. That's most of them. I feel like... Brad Pitt might have been in it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? No, it was earlier than that. Inglorious Bastards? Yes, that's what it was. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh, this is this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then not liking anything after that. Oh, see, I might even go further back myself. So you I, have the discerning Bastards, film taste. I think there's lots of great stuff in it. And he's good at what he does mm-hmm. usually. But I feel like the later his career has gone on, he's seems like someone who's doing an impression of Tarantino movies. It and seems losing... more people-pleasy. Maybe. And then when the things are odd, people, for some reason, are forgiving of his weird choices, but not of other people. They... Yeah. I don't know. I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is people pleasy because he's like, what are people into right now? And he's in a room with a whole bunch of like writing uh, True assistants. crime stuff. True crime. Uh, Manson. Uh, this. Uh, that. Uh, this. And shootings. And then he just went and made a movie with all of their like ad libs. That <laughs> seems actually quite accurate. And because like true crime is so big, of course I saw it. And like it was fine, but it wasn't like Pulp Fiction good. Very true. I was angry about a few things in that movie, but we're not doing a Tarantino podcast, so I'm going to swing us back. Wrap it up. Uh, Barry Jenkins also loves Wong Kar Wai, and you can see that when you look at his use of color. Barry Jenkins did um, If Feel Street Could Talk and Moonlight, and a lot of his color grading is reminiscent of Wong Kar Wai, I'd say. Interesting. 
But I was worried that it's too much of a movie for filmmakers, that it might not be as accessible. But I, I do think it is. And from what you said already, it seems like you felt that way mm-hmm. as well. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of what Roger Ebert said when this came out. He said, this is the kind of movie you'll relate to if you love film itself, rather than its surface aspects such as story and stars. It's not a movie for casual audiences, and it may not reveal all of its secrets the first time through. If you are attentive to the style, if you think about what Wong is doing, Chunking Express works. If you're trying to follow the plot, you may feel frustrated. And I think that was my worry about it. And I feel like that's very true to my viewing experience. Mm -hmm. Like I was trying to watch it like a normal romantic comedy that has, you know, flowing plot and a climax and then that's it. Yeah, it's kind of like when we were talking about Christmas Prince. Mm -hmm. You can leave that movie for 20 minutes, come back in and know exactly where you are because it hits all of those beats. Yeah. This has a lot of the essence of romantic comedies, but not necessarily the formatting. Yes, I agree. That is very, that's a very good way to put it. So let's go through the story. Since some of these characters don't have names at all, let's talk about them. Um, Takashi Kenoshiro, we can call him. Well, he has a name, but he's Cop 223, I think. We we'll call, call him, him Takashi. Cop? Okay. I might call him Kinoshiro sometimes because that's what I always think of him that's as. Fine. The second cop we'll just call Tony Young. Okay. Tony. Tony. That's easy. Bridget Lin, the woman in the blonde wig. We mm-hmm. can just call her Blondie. Blondie. Woman in the blonde wig. And yeah. Faye Wong also plays a character named Faye, so we can just call her Faye. Perfect. So it starts off with the first cop, and he's just such a sad sack. Mm-hmm. What did you think about him meeting him? It's it very sad sad <laughs> like i can't even think of another word to describe it he seemed very beat down um he seemed like someone going through a breakup but not well he seems like a romantic comedy character but written by someone who's doing a satire of romantic comedies because he's so pathetic right <laughs> he's hilarious <laughs> and i loved him and he's kind of like the epitome of Wong Kar Wai characters because he he monologues about love to himself mm-hmm. he's pretty much incapable of doing anything or thinking about anything else like he's a cop he has things to do but all day long he's just going to this stand like a fast food stand mm-hmm. midnight express where this movie mostly takes place yeah and he's just sitting there waiting for a phone call which, like, not a great police officer. No, no. He's very bad at his job, and I kind of love that about him. Like, in romantic comedies, you'd see someone who, if you actually look at it from a realistic movie lens, you're like, you're terrible at your job. Yeah. But we forgive it, forgive it because it's a romantic comedy. And this is kind of, like, bordering into romantic comedy, but also has crime drama things. Mm-hmm. So it's especially noticeable when he's a terrible cop. Yeah, true. <laughs> I love when he's at the shop and he's calling his ex-girlfriend's family. And he's like, no, no, I just want to talk to you. Like, oh, how's your wife doing? Oh, you guys have to go? Let me talk to her sister. Because he's just so, so lost without his girlfriend. And that was sad and weird. Because, like, I can't even imagine calling up, like, an ex's family. Yeah. It seems weird. I loved it because it is as over the top as you'd expect in a romantic comedy. But... He's in a different movie than Bridget Lynn. 
mm-hmm. is what it comes down to. And I love when they meet their energies they bring because they don't know what the other person's been through. And Kinoshiro is totally this romantic comedy, John Cusack kind of guy. And then she's straight up murdered people like 20 minutes before. And then they meet and they don't have any idea of what the other person's been through. And it's this blending of genres in one scene where these two people who have been in completely different movies see the world completely differently are meeting up. And it was really fun that way. But he gets um, obsessed with expiration dates and is going to buy a can of pineapple every day for the 30 days because May broke up with him on April 1st. And he thought it's an April Fool's joke, potentially. Right. So he's going to buy one of these every day and has to have an expiration date of May 1st because it's a month after May broke up with him. And it's also his birthday. And how did you feel about this whole uh, expiration date pineapple thing? And um, I did, in fact, eat my can of pineapples during this you sequence. Did. I was ready for it. Um. So I think that it seems like something someone would do after going through a bad breakup. Mm-hmm. Like to rationalize like the amount of time they're allowed to spend on the breakup. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking like, about it. It's like, okay, tonight I'm allowed to be sad, but tomorrow we're going out for drinks and we're going to just like move on. That's that's kind of the thing that it seems like, right? Like yeah. it's just, it's like, okay, I'm allowed to be sad until this date. I'm allowed to like feel my feelings, really be in it. I'm allowed to, you know, do this weird thing that I'm not really like allowed to be doing. And then as of May 1st, we're done. I'm moving on. This is a new me. I like that a lot. And for me, I think I've been critical about movies that are like, look, I'm quirky. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't stand Juno. Juno is like the epitome (laughs) of that quirkiness for no reason. And people often call this movie quirky. But I think that bits like this, like his pineapple obsession, goes far enough away from quirky and gets into the poetic and the metaphoric that it actually turns out to be uh, to be more than that. Because mm-hmm. it's truly an example of how he sees this world fundamentally different than other people do. Right. So that's why I'm forgiving of this. Like, I wrote this feature once where one of the characters, they're like, you have to make her quirkier because she was like the love interest. So it's right. like, all right, she only eats at restaurants that have puns for names. That's hilarious. She's going to go to Burned at the Stake and Pita Hayworth's and <laughs> the Leaning Tower of Pizzas and... I only have fries for you and much ado about muffins. You're very funny. And No, see, I'm not. (laughs) That's hacky, and I know it, and I knew it when I was writing it, but I was like, it'll be a funny joke when we get to, like, make up these restaurants that look like that. But we didn't have the budget to make them up, like, anything. So it's just in the name. And they go to one, and I forget what the actual pun is, because I wrote this movie. I've never... I've seen it once. I don't actually care for it. But... That's not good writing, but I argue what he's done here is good writing. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with you. While this story's going on, you probably wouldn't notice because you haven't seen the characters from later on in the movie, but we actually get to see like Fei Wong buying that giant Garfield. She's walking through a scene with a big giant Garfield. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you go back and look at it, you can be like, oh, I see how this, like, it's actually happening at the same time. Hmm. Interesting. And his. Flight attendant girlfriend, you can see uh, exiting an airport or something like that early on. So you get to see those characters in both worlds. Very cool. Yeah, that's something that I definitely wouldn't have noticed. But it's cool when filmmakers include those little things 
for rewatchers. And then we get into all the drug dealer stuff when she is getting this group of Indian men and getting them suits made so she can put what I think is heroin mm-hmm. into them and they're going to go somewhere and or sell the heroin. Or cocaine or something. Yeah. Something like that. And I even thought that bit was like funny in a lot of ways because she's like hurting them mm-hmm. like children, right? And yeah. that one guy, that one guy's hilarious to me who just like keeps wandering off and he's in a convenience store and he's just opening up pops and drinking yeah. some of it. Yeah, I liked her, the blonde wig lady. I liked her in the beginning because she was so in charge. And then you can see her in chargeness just like slowly kind of unwind throughout the movie. Yeah, so like you said, those guys take off. And also she has some sort of relationship with that white bartender. Mm-hmm. And I think he's involved in the drug business Yeah, in some I'd way. say so. But he starts ducking her as well. And he starts sleeping with another woman that he gets to wear a blonde wig. So yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that, that was a little weird. And then when they do meet, it's that scene that I was talking about where he's in a romantic comedy and... She's in a crime drama and it's very strange. Mm -hmm. But then they decide to go to a hotel together because she needs to sleep. And I'm assuming he thinks that means more. But no, she just goes to sleep. (laughs) And he eats like 12 meals. Yeah. I don't understand why he ordered so much room service. Because he was hungry. All he had eaten was 30 cans of pineapple. Then he threw it all up. And then he got real drunk. Sounds like a good night to get over a breakup. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? It kind of does. And it totally works, right? exactly. So then in the next morning, she's gone and he goes and runs and he speaks in metaphor as he often does. And this is the only way he gets his tears out. And again, in other movies, I'm less forgiving of people saying their emotions, Mm -hmm. but that is his the world that he lives in right it seems very true to him so i didn't have any problem with that then she goes and kills that guy at that point i one thing i never thought of before is is that other woman gonna go to jail because the other woman is wearing the same thing the wig and everything and dancing at a jukebox and she bridget lynn's blonde wigged woman comes and kills the guy And someone probably saw her walking out and they're going to be like, oh, who did it? Like, well, the only other Asian woman in a blonde wig in the same room. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, I think that lady's going to go to jail. Yeah, I never thought about that until this time because it's not really important in this Mm -hmm. movie. But yeah, now I realize that that woman's probably going to go to jail. Whoa. I didn't even consider that. But yeah, I forgot that they were dressed alike when she did that. Yeah. Yikes. And then uh, when he dies... He drops his, I think, sardines, maybe. And of course, they have an expiration date of that day because he has expired. Because they also communicate through expiration dates because he gives her a can that has the date of like a delivery or something like that. Right. Yeah, that was weird. That was a part that I didn't really get. But like, I guess that... It didn't matter. No, it it wasn't something that I like fixated on. (laughs) And what I really love is when she's walking away... She drops her wig off and we're going to say like, oh, you finally get to see the real her. But the only shot you get is a still and it's blurry. So you never really know who she was Hmm. this whole time. Interesting. Mystery lady. Aren't we all unknowable? We're all mystery lady. I know I am. (laughs) You are a mystery lady, love. And then Kanishiro gets into his voiceover again and he's going to the 
shop where he always is, and they say, oh, we have a new woman working today, and Fei Wang brushes by, and he says, that's as close as we ever got, but the next day she would fall in love with another man. Cute new movie. Yeah. How did that hit you when it happened? It was jarring. And that is kind of when I didn't really transition with the movie. Like, that's when I got kind of confused. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't want to, like, get my phone out and Google during the movie. Because it was a good movie. So I just, you know, Googled a couple days later. There was also a third story. What? But it was just too long or for whatever reason it wouldn't fit. So he made an entire movie of that. And that is Fallen Angels. So you can go watch Fallen Angels now, and it's a third story, and you can watch and be like, oh yeah, I see why this would be in there as well. Huh, interesting. It's not as good in my mind. Oh, and I will probably forget later, but I don't know if this is the best news or the worst news. In the last year, Wong Kar Wai filed a copyright for a Chungking Express sequel. Oh no. I believe it's called Chungking Express 2020. Oh is it about the pandemic? No, he has done this in the past where he has one movie like In the Mood for Love and then he makes a futuristic sci-fi sequel and In the Mood for Love is like a beautiful, great movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's maybe his best, even though I like Chunking Express more. Mm-hmm. And it's a very stark, simple romance. <laughs> and then the character from that has kind of a jumping off point and it goes into the sci-fi what's real, what's not kind of world. And it's very strange to have that be a sequel to such a grounded movie. Hmm. I think the sequel might not be even having the same characters. It might just be the same ideas in another film. Mm, okay. In a more modern setting, perhaps. Right. So I don't know how it's going to work. It might not be 2020. It might also be 2000. But anyway, it's a different time. Okay. But anyways, we get into our second movie and we're introduced to Tony Leung, who is a unnamed police officer. And we have Fei Wong, who works at Midnight Express. And Tony is super sad because his girlfriend left. Fei Wong dances around. Bee's cute. Bee's cute? Yeah, that's what she does. She just bee's cute. She is cute. How did you like her? When you're introduced um, to her. She was very strange, but also she bees cute. I think there was no one more charming to 18-year-old Indy than dancing Fei Wong. I was Aww. like, this this is a dream woman right here. <laughs> I thought she was super charming. Watching it now, I'd be like, oh, yeah, she might be super annoying to actually know. <laughs> to, like, be with? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I could see that. So the police officer comes in every day and buys the same food for his girlfriend to take home at the end of his shift. And then one day he's the owner says, why don't you try something new? And he gets her fish and chips instead of the chef salad. And then she ends up leaving him because if food can be better, perhaps people can be better too. And she moves on with her life and leaves him very, very sad, much like Kinoshiro earlier. (laughs) And she leaves this note for him at the fast food stand and i love the bit that as soon as they get it they steam it open and everyone reads it yeah and he doesn't it's very true and that was kind of funny in that like everyone was in on it in the in the restaurant and so it was uh kind of sad to see that he never read it oh yeah does he ever no maybe it's for the best because it was kind of mean it was it also has keys in it. Right. 
And so with those keys, Fei Wang starts breaking into his place mm-hmm. and first just like hanging out. Then she starts cleaning and then she starts like replacing his things. Mm-hmm. Which is like odd, but also like cute in this, however. Like somehow it's cute. So I know how in um we talked about love actually. Mm-hmm. And I said, those people are stalkers and they should be arrested. Yeah. I'm much more forgiving of Fei Wong. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And it's not just because she's super charming. Because I find this acceptable for the same way as Kinoshiro's voiceovers. I think it's because this movie gets into the world of metaphor. Or if not metaphor, at least having people's emotions and inner workings expressed as actual events in the outside world. Mm -hmm. So that's why I don't think Fei Wong is a dangerous stalker, but rather she is uh, metaphorically cleaning up the past of Tony Leung's character. Right. So I think that's why I'm accepting of this and not the terrible, terrible people in Love Actually. (laughs) It was a terrible movie. What did you think about when he starts talking to all of the inanimate objects? I found it very, like, cute. Like, he was somebody different at home almost. So you weren't worried about his mental health? I mean, I was, (laughs) but also, like, I found it kind of fun. Like, he lives alone. He has all these, like, stuffed animals or, like, things around him. He has a lot of stuffed animals. This is the only adult who has more stuffed animals than you. I think there are other adults who have more stuffed animals than me. The only, you're, you and Tony Leung are the only two adults I respect who have that many stuffed animals. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, love. Um, but it it made me think that he's like putting on the tough cop veneer mm-hmm. over top of like him just being a normal person. And this is what he likes. And he lives alone. And he has lots of stuffed animals. And he likes to talk to them. Yeah. Well, I think it gets into the metaphorical stuff as well. Because he also, like, gives his dish rag a pep talk. Yeah. Like, he had to stop crying all the time. kind of weird. Well, he's, he's clearly just talking to himself. Yes. And his own self is reflected in his... Uh, in his apartment, right? That's kind of what I thought. He was, like, trying to give himself a pep talk without giving himself a pep talk. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually he catches her coming in to the place. And I love when she sneaks out. Like, mm-hmm. she runs and then hides in a cupboard and then runs out. Yeah. I love the two times where she gets kind of caught. I think were very funny. Those were cute moments. I think I like the second story better than I like the first story. The goldfish? Oh, like the overall stories? Yeah. The two parts of the movie. I always did by quite a bit. This time, I think I probably still do. Although this time I thought the first story was so much funnier than I'd remembered. Hmm. Because I think I was taking him too seriously the first time. And now if you look at him as a character pulled from a romantic comedy and thrown into a crime drama, Mm -hmm. it's hilarious. Interesting. So I think that gets gets very funny. But (laughs) when you're not sure like how to take everything it's it's off-putting i guess and then when they meet again at the food stand he suggests they go out and so then they make a date for that evening he goes she never shows up but then the owner comes by with a boarding pass or a note he doesn't know what's in it and of course he doesn't read it immediately eventually he throws it away Picks it back out, and this time he's actually going to open it, unlike mm-hmm. the first woman's yes letter. So I love the scene where 
it's all wet and he's like delicately opening it uh-huh. and then he puts it in like that hot dog rack or something like that, yeah. that food rack to dry it out. And I think in a normal romantic comedy, he would read it and then be like, oh, I know what to do now. And he'd run to the airport yeah. and proclaim his love. It would be now. But instead, he um, he just moves on. Yeah. And he ends up buying the food stand, uh, quits his job as a cop, which is always a good choice. <laughs> and she says it through voiceover that she was in the bar, which is called California, and we forgot to mention she listens to California Dreaming over and over and over and over again. And she says, like, I owed it to myself to give it a try. So she moves to California for a year, doesn't like it, and comes back. And he's the owner of this shop now, and she is now a flight attendant and we think is going to be living in Hong Kong. Not quite sure, Hmm. but they just kind of meet. And that's where the movie ends. I like that. How'd you like the ending? I liked the ending, that they came back to each other. That was a nice little thing to add on. Do you like the ambiguity of the ending? No. I like a more wrapped up, tidy movie. But also, like, I understand why it was ambiguous. Would you have liked it better if they kissed at the end? Yes. Really? It just seems so odd. Like, those two people kissing at that moment just doesn't seem right. I don't know why, but it just, it seems like the wrong choice. And I can't uh, explain why I feel like that. It just seems like this was a good ending for them. Interesting. That maybe something will happen, maybe not. I feel like regardless of what happens between them, they're both at a good spot. They both figured things out for themselves. For sure. And that's something that I think a lot of more traditional romantic comedies could uh, stand to learn from is that they both realized they needed to do something for themselves before they could be in a proper relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked the idea of growing as a person and then going back to the one that you want to be with to see if you still want to be with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's like a fun thing that you don't usually see in romantic comedies. Yeah, because it's probably quite hard to like actually depict on screen. But I think they did a good job of it in this. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into some other stuff. Let's start with just how this movie is directed. Right. Because I always say Wong Kar Wai is in my top five directors of all time. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of artifice to his directing. Like you have that frame rate stuff where people are kind of slow motion and kind of blurred out. You have people talking to stuffed animals like they're friends. You have... uh, They are friends. That's true. But there's a certain level of um, comfortability. Is that a word? Comfortability? Comfortability. A certain amount of comfort (laughs) and casualness to to how he does these like very strange things. Yeah. Did the color of this movie, like how it looks on a very basic level, how things are colored... Did that strike you at all? I felt like the first movie had a very, um, almost like Bond coloring to it. Bond? James Bond? Yeah. Like it was What very, is Bond coloring? I don't know. Like, okay, so now that I say that, it doesn't really make any sense. But it's like a very like action-y flick kind of coloring to it. Okay. Whereas the second story had a very like real life kind of lighting and coloring to it. Interesting. They did have two different cinematographers. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So that maybe is what you're picking up on. Good eye. Bond might be the wrong word, but it um, 
is definitely like they felt like two different things to me. Yeah. Bond may be the exact right word. I actually haven't seen the, any of the new James Bonds, so I have no idea. I've only seen a few, and I've also only seen a few of the old ones. So I could be, like, totally off. But it felt very action and adventure in the first one, and the second one felt very, like, everyday kind of normal lighting. And I think normal is a better word than maybe you even realize. Because I think color grading and the use of natural light is probably something that most people won't Mm -hmm. pay attention to. But I think the benefit of how it's done in this is how it lends itself to the authenticity of it. Right. Like, if you watch this movie, you feel like these places are as they are. Mm-hmm. Another director I love is uh, Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick makes these beautiful sets. But I don't for a moment think that the real world looks like how Kubrick depicts it. His sets are a reflection of the characters in the films right. rather than their own like reality mm-hmm. with Wong Kar Wai, I feel like this is Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And then when you also get it colored by the emotions or the actions of the people and by Wong Kar Wai's vision, and I mean the colored both literally and figuratively, like it's not always strict reality, mm-hmm. but when he, when he does choose to change things up from strict reality, it's so much more effective because you already believe in this world. You right. believe that world is as it is because he's shooting at night in Hong Kong with natural light. Mm-hmm. He's not bringing in big lights or building studio sets or anything like that. And then when he changes things up so they have like blue tints or oranges depending on whatever the scene Mm -hmm. is you believe that that world is perfect for those characters Mm -hmm. and i think the only way that you get such such authenticity with clearly artificial choices and all those stylized sequences is by a man who sees this world as reality right and i think that's the case with him like when you listen to interviews with him I don't believe for a moment that he's creating these worlds because he thinks it looks cool. I think he's creating the worlds to match what he sees in his mind. Because this guy, from when he was like a young filmmaker to today, any interview you see with him, he's wearing sunglasses and he's smoking a cigarette. And I don't think it's just like, hey, I'm cool. I'm a cool filmmaker. I think he believes in a world where everything should be a little cooler. Let's do our part. And (laughs) he does his part in this one. I agree. Everything should be a little bit cooler. Yeah. That's why we shall watch Wong Kar Wai movies. <laughs> Everyone would be a little bit cooler. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> That's why you're so cool, right? Oh, clearly. Yeah. That's why. That's why I like you so much. <laughs> like, he watches a lot of Wong Kar Wai. Yep. <laughs> going to marry him. <laughs> this is an odd question, but answer in any way you feel appropriate how did you relate to the spaces in this movie spaces how like there's no real establishing shots Mm -hmm. in this movie so this is a movie that takes place in hong kong which is a city of like amazing giant skyscrapers do you know like do you know what does hong kong look like to you because you've never been there i just imagine it like a lot of high-rise buildings really really close together would it surprise you that there it's an island and there's mountains on it? There's mountains on Hong Kong? Yeah, see, right? Like, you don't get a sense of what Hong Kong looks like at all from this movie. But it is the most Hong Kong movie. 
And I feel like no movie captures what it feels like in Hong Kong more than it. But it doesn't give you an idea what it looks like at all. Huh. Yeah, you're right. You there's never get no, to see a like, building. There's no zoom out. No. There's no street shot. Not at all. No. Interesting. Huh. I didn't really realize that. And I knew that Hong Kong was an island. I didn't realize there were mountains on it. Well, half of it is an island. Half of this movie takes place on Hong Kong Island. Right. You have the island proper, and then you have Kowloon, which is the peninsula, which I love. Hong Kong is where you get your newer, shinier, more expensive things. Kowloon is chunking mansions and things like that. So the island is probably more Western and modern, while Kowloon is more traditional and Eastern, if I want to like summarize very quickly. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So the movie takes place on both. And like if I can project my own ideas into this movie, I feel like in a metropolis like Hong Kong... You get both extremes of being out in public. Like, you can be anonymous because there's so many people and you can feel unseen, but you also can make public places private. Mm -hmm. Like, because you are unseen, you get a certain amount of privacy and anything can be your own intimate space. So you're never alone when you're out in Hong Kong. Right. But because there's so many people and there's so much anonymity, you're kind of always alone. That makes sense, yeah. I love I've traveled to a lot of like big, big cities and it's it's unique. I love that about a big city that you can feel alone in the middle of a million people. That yeah. sounds sad, but it's good. No, I, I understand that feeling. And I definitely think the closest I've come to feeling that is like either in Las Vegas on the strip, when there are people just like pushing past you and you're like, I don't know anyone else around, but mm-hmm. like this is this is a thing. Where there's like a billion people around me. Um, or like in New York and Times Square at New Year's. It like literally you're, I've like been to Times Square on New Year's Eve and you get put in this pen that you don't get to leave for like 10 hours. Everything about going to Times Square on New Year's Eve sounds like the worst thing in the world. It was an experience and I <laughs> wanted to do it and my mom lied to a police officer. So <laughs> about Mama Mia, which she hates ABBA. Um, but yeah, so it just felt like you are in this pen for 10 hours with people. You don't get to know anybody really. And um, it's just like you and your bladder having to pee the entire time. That was really it. But I think if we go back to the movie in Hong Kong, the difference might be that these people aren't here for a shared experience in any way. Mm -hmm. They're all just doing their own thing, going about their own lives, passing each other by quite literally on these escalators and passing lives also very literally Mm -hmm. as they go by. All these people are lost in this metropolis, but the Midnight Express, the food stand, is kind of their anchor geographically. Yeah. And they're trying to hold on to this, at least the two cops. Mm -hmm. And they're also very much trying to hold on to their own lives or what they think is important in their lives, their own past. And they're trying to find some sort of stability. Mm -hmm. And Tony Lung's character relates to his space after she has left and how it's different now. So he sees his apartment as a very much a, uh, like the idea of a pathetic fallacy where, um, Poe would do that all the time, where the room takes on the characteristics of the human. Right. Your emotions are reflected in the world around you. Mm -hmm. He does this quite a bit 
because he's always talking about how the apartment is crying after she left and it's he's being very literal with it a lot of the time and i i think that whole thing was a lot of fun and then when fei wong comes in she's changing the space and effectively trying to like heal his trauma of his past right and she's doing literal tangible things and then their metaphorical value is is seen as as he grows and kind of gets over over things. Mm-hmm. I also like that the only space Kinoshiro and the woman in the blonde wig share is a hotel because it's a private space for them, but it's also a space of transience, not of like mm-hmm. you don't make your life there, right? Yeah, except for us. We don't live in a hotel. Well, we lived in a hotel for like three weeks. Yeah, because our home was being repaired. True. It kind of felt like we made a fun life there, though. True. But it's not real life. True. Hotel is... life isn't real life. Exactly. Hotels are spaces of transience. We just made that point together. <laughs> yes. Oh, and were we high-fiving? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I think transience and being stationary are really important in this movie as well. Like, mm-hmm. they're all stuck in one way or another. Both men are obsessed with the past and they want to go back to how things were. They're both very static. They go to the same place, they order the same food, and they hope things don't change. Or they, they rather, they hope that things go back to how they were. Mm-hmm. But the two women we get in Faye and the blonde woman are ambitious and they're out to change their lives. They go about it very different ways, of course, but mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to do. It seems at first that Faye isn't as stuck because she wants to go somewhere else. But you can see that she is stuck in that idea of California because she's listening to the same song over and over again. She's going to the bar, California, and eventually she leaves. So she does get what she wants in in some respect. Mm -hmm. And then to contrast Tony Lung's character, his girlfriend is a flight attendant who's always traveling around the world. And it's made very literal, their relationship, when... He's staying at home and waving to her as she goes by on that giant escalator. Yeah. Those escalators are real and they're kind of cool too. Are they? Yeah. I was wondering about having an escalator outside your apartment. Yeah, there's like, because there's so many people commuting in certain areas that they're like, okay, we have the subways, we have the roads, but what else can we do to take care of that? And they put in these giant escalators. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. And then eventually she leaves after he orders her something different than a chef salad and his fear is that once she sees the outside world and she becomes more worldly that she'll also realize that she can do better than him yeah like introducing her to the outside world and choice yeah was a bad idea yeah because he's very not he's not a bad guy but he's a very self-centered person Mm -hmm. his world is about himself and like it's very apparent with the apartment and he talks to everything but everything's just a reflection of himself right and his takeaway from buying her a different dinner and then her leaving is that now she knows there's other options out there just as there are different options with men right which is a weird link to make in your mind it is and it seems like he's just ignoring the actual reason that they broke up yes because he's he's been stuck in a rut yes and he does not acknowledge that at all until later on. Exactly. So then when Faye comes in, she's kind of championing this idea of staying where you are and being comfortable. But she's doing it by uh, healing that trauma, by cleaning the place, mm-hmm. by replacing the polar bear with a Garfield, <laughs> which he somehow doesn't notice. 
It's weird <laughs> that he doesn't notice that because that's a that's a stark difference. But again, it's all just representations of himself and his own mind and his well-being. Mm, I would notice. I think you'd notice that, but I think there's a lot of things you don't <laughs> notice about what I do around here. <laughs> Especially if it's in the kitchen, I don't think you'd notice. I go in the kitchen. I change things a lot now. <laughs> oh, <notice>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like... I think it's perfect that he doesn't notice the apartment changes because he's so stuck in the past that he can't acknowledge these changes at all. Right. He's like unconsciously changing. Absolutely. Without realizing it. He's he's healing. Yeah. She's healing him. And he's doing some work on his own too. And then I like that she goes away and comes back and they're like, good to go. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So then he gets the shock that she's gone to California And we learn that she's now a flight attendant. And he needs to learn for himself that this room is not his life. Mm -hmm. And he needs to learn for himself that going out and exploring, maybe that's not his life either. Mm -hmm. Because so often if it's someone who's stuck in a rut, then they go on a big trip and they move away and that's how they solve it. Right. That's not the case with him. He needs to change, but he also needs to be in Hong Kong. That's mm-hmm. who he is. And he needs to discover this, that that's where his life is. And maybe Faye will come into that life. But he's not willing to give up all of the things that maybe he's learned about himself. And I think he has in this year that she's gone. Because he quits his job. He buys a, a restaurant. He changes everything. Yeah. So he does make a change, but it doesn't have to be the same change that she makes or that his ex-girlfriend makes. And I right. think that's the choice that m- other movies, maybe more simple movies might make. Mm-hmm. But I love the choice of he's like, no, I'm just going to stop being a cop, but I love Hong Kong. This is this is where I should be. Mm-hmm. I liked that. And I liked that he was trying something new and that he was just like, I'm going to do this because it means a lot to me, this place. Yeah. Like buying that that restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we would think that Faye's problems would be solved by her going to California, but that's not the case either because she said she gave it a year, but then she ultimately comes back. So she needed to change what she thought would help her as well. So she goes out to the rest of the world and comes back and possibly comes back to him. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, that would be the ultimate for him, right? Because his biggest fear is like, if you see the outside world, why would you come back to me? And she goes out for a year to California and then comes back. Yeah. That makes me think that they will be together forever. I hope so. Or for now. Yeah. I don't know. In a lot of movies, I think about what would happen later. In this one, I don't even want to think about I just like that they're there at that moment. Mm -hmm. And he's bought the Midnight Express, which is kind of the the center of his self-centered nature or Mm -hmm. it used to be the apartment but then he has this as well but now he's taking ownership of it Mm -hmm. and i guess that's the only successful part about the transience versus being stationary because in the first movie you could say that kinoshiro has gotten to some point of acceptance because he has moved on and the simple gesture of her wishing him a happy birthday that's all he needed Mm-hmm. He needed so little to move on. Yeah. yeah. Which is also kind of sad, but like kind of beautiful that he got what he needed. Mm-hmm. So I feel like he's ready to move on. She, the woman in the blonde wig, who knows? She's such an enigma. Yeah. Is she going to jail after this? Is she fleeing the country? We don't know what's happening. Yeah. 
we could say she's better off in the short term. She's gotten out of that immediate situation, mm-hmm. but it's probably only going to get worse. True. Who knows? Drugs. It's a downhill spiral. There you go. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Stay in school. But the second story, you could say, is somewhat successful because they find some sort of middle ground. It's not, yes, we're going to move to California together. It's not, we're going to stay in this apartment forever together. It's, we're both going to change our jobs and move around, but mostly be here. Mm-hmm. And I think you could say that Tony Leung is also an agent of change for Faye because she only realizes that she's been sleepwalking through her life after seeing him. Mm-hmm. She looks at him and goes like, oh, is that what I'm like? And then when they go to have that date, she realizes, like, I need to do something. Mm-hmm. I need to go to California. Yeah. You have very good outcomes from this movie, and I like them, and I wish I was as smart as you. <laughs> it's not that you're not as smart as me. I think I uh, obsess about it more than you. <laughs> I, after watching it this most recent time, I was really, like, thinking about it for, like, four days. <laughs> I was just in that world. So you said upon your first watching that you got the two cops mixed up. Yes. Which I don't think is just you not paying attention or anything like that. I think that's intentional, right? They don't even give Tony Leung a name. Yeah. They're both just cops. They're just numbers. I think their numbers are 223 and 663. Right. So even that is like really similar, right? It is, yeah. And then Bridget Lynn, the woman in the blonde, she also has a double because there's that other woman in the blonde wig. Mm-hmm. And Kinoshiro says when he meets her that he's going to fall in love with the next person he sees. And it just happens to be her. It could have been literally anyone could have walked through that door. Mm-hmm. I think, again, although perhaps unintentional, this serves as like a commentary on romantic comedy movies because how often I say like the only reason they're in love is because they were near each other. Mm-hmm. And he's coming out right and saying like, I don't care who it is. I'm just going to fall in love with the next person. And that's kind of his way of getting over his yeah. his breakup. And so much of this movie talks about happenstance and coincidence and what may have been. And I think that all goes into those ideas of fluidity of identity because those two cops are interchangeable. The two blondes are interchangeable. There's two Mays in this movie. There's mm-hmm. May, May, and Faye. Yeah, so that was in, also very confusing. They're intentionally doing these things to show how much of this is just coincidence and how much maybe happenstance plays a part in our lives. Mm-hmm. Then maybe they're also saying that the idea of breaking into someone's house and switching their polar bear for a Garfield, replacing their soap, or staying up late while she falls asleep and eating lots of chef salads like all of those are just as valuable every night i don't eat chef salad although i do eat salads when you go to bed a lot yeah that's true that's true it's because i make you eat all the bad things before i go to bed yeah when you're not around it's healthy time (laughs) (laughs) but it's saying like all of these things are just as valuable maybe because it's all it's all happenstance Mm -hmm. and i think that's where he gets into his kind of postmodern ideas that our identities are just constructions. Yeah, it's interesting to see the second character's growth throughout the movie. And I feel like part of the reason that I got confused was because the first character doesn't really grow through the movie, like through the first part of the movie. No, his only growth is it's like a self-imposed deadline. of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be over it on this day. And then he kind of is. Yeah. And, like, his running thing 
that's yeah a symbol of it but it's it is an odd one because it's not like he does the work to get somewhere but maybe he's doing the work that he needs to do because mm-hmm. he needs that month he needs the month to wallow in it right? yeah maybe that's what he needs more than anything he needs time to be this sad sack character yeah and he needs someone to show him just like a little bit of affection yeah that's all he needed rebound yeah (laughs) i think we can't leave without talking about the music of this movie California Dreamin'. That's the only song that I know from this movie. So that is played so many times that... Well, how did you feel when you kept hearing it over and over again? At first, I didn't really understand why she was playing it, and then I it kind of became synonymous almost with her character. Yeah. I think it gets, it's funny at first, then it gets annoying, and then it takes on like the qualities of a mantra. Mm-hmm. I think you'll probably know a better example of this than I do, but there's a lot of romantic comedies where when they're, the two characters aren't together at first, they share some sort of joke or some sort of saying, mm-hmm. and then they get together, then there's some sort of falling out, and then they have to get together in the end at the airport or wherever, and then the person says the thing from earlier in the movie. It happens in lots of romantic comedies, I can't pick them out right now, mm-hmm. but it is a trope. Right. It takes on that quality. So then when he's playing California Dreamin' at the end, it's like, I remember you and I remember what you did for me, is what he's saying by playing that song. Because it's played so much, it takes on more than the meaning of the song. I agree. I think it feels like, to him, it symbolizes the beginning of his like new life, almost. Where he's like... No, this is like my new life song, so I'm painting my new shop and it's going to be my new thing. It could have been like in a different movie where she comes in and it's like, you're wearing that locket that has the picture of the photo booth we went to on our first date. It's like that, right? Mm -hmm. The song has so much more meaning. Yeah. Because of how often it's used. Yeah, true. Also, there's uh, Things in Life by Dennis Brown. I only know Dennis Brown because Bob Marley said that that's one of his favorite musicians. So that's the kind of reggae song we hear a lot in the first one. Oh, interesting. I didn't register that song as much as California Dreamin', so... It's a lot, but it's quieter because she's blasting California Dreamin'. She is. It's such it's a point that nobody can loud, hear, right? Yeah. Uh, what a Difference a Day Makes by Dina Washington's played quite a few times. <laughs> And I think that's a, they're pretty much saying what the meaning of that song in this movie is. True, yeah. There's also the kind of unofficial theme of the movie. It's called Baroque by Michael Galasso. <laughs> it's all on electric violin. Um, interesting. I really like that one. It has such a 
like detective story crime drama but also kind of sad and it just it makes it fits this movie very well <laughs> and uh, galasa would go on to do the music for in the mood for love which is of course that great one car why movie i was talking about earlier which you should watch <laughs> and his music in that is very good as well but what about when Fei Wong herself covers Dreams by the Cranberries? So it's so 90s because it's the Cranberries, yes. but it's so Hong Kong because it's Fei Wong. And most people you talk to are like, oh, what's your favorite scene of the movie? Everyone's going to be like, oh, when she's cleaning the apartment and the montage and Dreams is playing, because mm -hmm. that's such a fun bit. That is a fun bit, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed how the music really enhanced the movie, kind of. Like, the beginning felt, felt like a spy movie, almost, because of some of the music choices. And then the second one seemed very hopeful and young because of... The music choices yeah and i think that those two differences go right along with the two female leads in either story right exactly and i think that that really helped and added and was part of the reason why when i like confirmed what i thought about the movie was actually like what the movie was when i read the synopsis i think that that um music really was like yeah okay that that helped me kind of understand what was going on in the movie and it makes sense because although the two male leads, it's kind of their story more, mm -hmm. but the two females are the driving forces behind both of them. Both of the men are just kind of stuck and are like going along for the ride for the most part until they reach a point where they can make some sort of de decision, but usually that's facilitated by the, by the female leads. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that the music would reflect them more than the guys, because I don't even know what kind of music you would choose for, for the men. Yeah. They're not particularly strong characters. They're reactionary in a lot of ways. Right. They're not the strong male lead. Maybe. I don't think so. No. I don't think so either. Are they heartthrobs? Or is it just me? It's just you. Tony Leung? Come on. That's no. a handsome man. I don't know. Not even Kanishiro? He's so, he's like a young DiCaprio. Better looking, though. <laughs> um, I wouldn't call them heartthrobs. Really? No. I think they're both very handsome men, but uh, Tony Leung gets better looking in a moon in the mood for love. I think is is peak peak Tony Leung peak hot Tony Leung. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. What about oh, we already went with Fei Wong? We both think is cute, mm -hmm. and then we don't really get to see much of Bridget Lin. No, you never really see her whole face and actual hair, so oh. it it's kind of throws you. I off. also think she's wearing quite a bit of makeup to just like obscure her more. Yeah. I've been talking for a real long time. <laughs> I hope that you got to say all the things you wanted to say. I did. I This is one of those movies that I really enjoyed but didn't have like a whole bunch to say about. Mm -hmm. But you really soliloquized my thoughts well. Good. I guess there's one thing that we have to talk about. You can't talk about any Hong Kong movie without talking about the handover to China. Because the Hong Kong we see in this movie is no more. The Chinese government and the new Hong Kong police, which are nothing like heartthrob Tony Leung, oh. but rather, uh, we use the word Gestapo a lot, but that's pretty much what it is. Oh my God. And there's no freedom of the press or anything like that. And 
you guys can all do your research. I don't need to talk. Remember, I'm not talking. I'm only worrying about one genocide at a time. One genocide at a time. <laughs> only one corrupt government at a time. Yeah. So you can all look at that. But it, I think how it applies to this movie is they knew that time was coming. So this took place in 94. So they're just a few years out from the handover to China. And they knew this has been coming for a very long time. So I don't think the ideas of flights being an escape, of deadlines being so important, and that something's going to happen at the end of this, I don't think it's just coincidental. Right. I don't know if people thought it would go as poorly as it has, because for quite some time the Chinese did give those freedoms that they said they were going to. And it was like small changes, but it, of course it's gotten very out of hand in the last five years. But I was lucky enough to go there a bunch of times when it was still, it, it wasn't British Hong Kong, but it wasn't as far removed as it is now. Mm. Of course, for people like us, we can still go there. We're going to be safe. It's the actual people of Hong Kong that are no longer safe. But um, That's never good. But again... Only one corrupt government one at a time. corrupt government. So what we're, we can we're say... We're worrying about India right now? I was. Now I don't even know. Like, what can I even do? I donate some money. Like, how far is that going? I donated some money. <laughs> um, but anyways, to the movie, there is an obsession with dates and deadlines in this movie. And I think that is indicative of the uh, the mindset of 1994 Hong Kong, of having this this world and fearing that it might end. True. And I think these characters in different ways all uh, embody that. And for the sake of brevity and not talking about more corrupt governments, we don't need to go into how each character kind of goes into that. I'm going to just delete this paragraph out of my notes. <laughs> and um, maybe we'll just uh, wrap it up. Mm -hmm. So in the end, now we've been through the plot, you're yes. sure of how things turned out. How did you like chunking express i think i loved it wow it was a sneaky love sneaky love <laughs> there's some sneaky love in this movie yeah she just sneaks in makes him fall in love with her yep. by drugging his water <laughs> she does drug him at one point she does i for kind of forgot about that um but, but she says if you're having trouble sleeping remember to drink your water so then she puts sleeping pills in his water so then he drinks it and goes to sleep yeah maybe that's what i need to do to you Oh, actually, that might not be a bad idea. Hmm. We'll save that for another time. Okay, sounds good. Um, yes, I sneakily love this movie. So what would you say to people who perhaps aren't interested in watching foreign films or things that are a little more experimental? How would you sell them on it? Because you... I think you're the spokesperson. What? For like, because you like this movie, you love this movie yeah. now, and you traditionally don't watch these types of things. No, I'd say keep an open mind, abandon what you think about romantic comedies, like English romantic comedies, and just like go along for the ride. That's good advice. Yeah, I think I think you can't take it too seriously, and you can't be too analytical about it, and then um, you also just like just enjoy it it's a fun movie it is a really fun movie and that's one thing that i was trying to get across when we're doing the preview of like i know a lot of my movies aren't fun but this is a fun movie mm -hmm. so i know we spent a lot of the time on this podcast talking about those uh, 
more esoteric things, those things mm-hmm. beneath the surface. And a lot of the times with great movies, I'll be like, all the performances were great and stuff, but look at all these great themes going throughout it. And that's what makes it truly great. Mm-hmm. I think this goes in reverse. I love all of those things. And I love that it is a complex movie with so many underlying through lines and ideas and themes and takes on love and just the world around. But I think the best thing about it might be the surface stuff. Mm-hmm. When it's just a fun watch and you get to see all of these characters that are all very fun in their own ways. Mm-hmm falling in love or just going through going through life. And I think I'm going to say what I thought of when we were introducing it. Right. This may be my favorite movie ever. What? Your favorite movie ever? Maybe. Like when people ask me what my favorite movie is, my go-to answer for many years has been Taxi Driver. Mac and me. Yeah, or Mac and me. I say, Taxi Driver, it's the greatest. Right. And I, I, I think it's just amazing, Taxi Driver. But now I'm thinking I may like this movie more. And I wonder if that has to do with my changing outlook on life. Mm-hmm. Like, Taxi Driver is all about meaninglessness, nihilism. The world is the worst. All we do is suffer. Which is it's true. I still mm-hmm. think that. You always joke about how I'm uh, pessimistic or nihilistic and everything is doom and gloom. But I don't think that's how I feel. I think that's maybe how a lot of other people who are less into those ideas than I am think that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. I still believe like, yeah, life is suffering. That's true. (laughs) But like this movie and the works of Wong Kar Wai, I believe the world is, um, yeah, there's violence. There's crime. There's people who are lost and just floating around looking for something to latch on to. But there's also magic and there's romance and there's charm and there's beauty. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie has such an amazing balance of those that that's why it just seems like just perfect. And it's not just out of nowhere that all these good things come. There's mm-hmm. no uh, prince sweeping you off your feet. All of these characters, they make the magic for themselves. And when we talk about me being a nihilist, and I was like, yeah, I'm a nihilist, but I'm a happy nihilist. And you and others are like, must be so sad to think that life has no meaning. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's so freeing Mm -hmm. to think life has no meaning. Because then I am free to choose what is meaningful. Hmm. And in this movie... Like, Kinoshiro makes up how he's going to be happy. Uh-huh. He says, oh, on this day, I'm going to be over things. I'm just going to run out all my tears. And he does it. And He is happy. Yeah, he moves on. I don't think it's just, like, for the day. I think he is better. <laughs> Tony Leung's character is like, I'm going to make this world. I'm going to take the time to make myself better by talking to this soap, by talking to this Garfield, mm-hmm. by talking to this rag. They're all reflections of me, and that's somewhere he knows that. But he's taking it upon himself to make his life better. And yes, of course, there's these outside influences, and everything works out just perfectly and comes together in a way to make it for him. But it's not just like she comes in and says like, hey, I'm quirky and different. Come with me to California. It's not that. She starts things up or helps him out. 
But he does that. He chooses to quit being a cop and to buy that place. These characters make these worlds better for themselves. And it straddles such an amazing line between the uh, stark grittiness of this crime drama with magical realism at some points even mm-hmm. and like just the silliness of a romantic comedy it it has a foot in both of those worlds and it walks that line so perfectly that i think it might be my favorite movie ever maybe wow it's in the top five for sure but at this moment at the moment where we turned it off yeah i was like that's my favorite movie no question <laughs> so yeah i love this movie so everyone out there, go watch Chunking Express if you haven't already. I will lend you a copy. It's that good. You need to watch it. Oh, I love it. Of course, if you're somehow haven't seen it and are listening to this, well, we ruined it all. But it's, you know what? I think we could watch it right now. You might like it more. Yeah. Um, and you can click that link in our show notes. The and if it's within a month of this coming out, you can probably watch it right in there. Yeah. Perfect. I'm all done. I think I soliloquized <laughs> for a while there. I got into a whole thing. Should I do some talking now? Yeah, do it. Okay, well, next week I will be bringing Indy a movie to watch and we will tell you what we are currently really into in our picks of the week. And uh, if you want to discuss Chunking Express or just like anything, past loves, gossip, anything, anything really – it's you know a year and a half into the pandemic we just want to hear from people yeah true so uh you can find us on instagram and twitter at iltyys and the number two you can find us on facebook at i love this you should two dash podcast and you can email us all your long form love letters at i love this you should and the number two at gmail.com Please do that. And although I expressed my love of Fei Wong, do not just break into our house and do little cute things for us because it'll actually just scare me. Yeah, it'll scare <laughs> me too when I notice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll see you next week when it is my turn to tell Indy what he's watching. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye.